Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This week on Forward. Economic development is fundamentally about creating the conditions where companies want to invest their capital and people want to raise their families. The reality is that you really have to treat the business as the customer and and go to the the CEO and go to the HR department and say, you know, what what does your demand signal look like for workers? What skills do you need? What What kind of actually humans would you employ? (laughs) Exactly. People want to have their problem acknowledged and to be heard far more than they want that problem to actually be solved. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast my fellow Forward National Board member, President and CEO of Greater New Orleans, Inc., one of the best guys I know. And that's saying something because I know a lot of people. Michael Hecht. Welcome, Michael. (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. It is fantastic to be here. And it might just speak to the quality of the people that you know, but I'll take it. Michael and anyone listening to this will see what I mean because Michael spent his career uh, helping create opportunity and vitality in New Orleans, a city that has been in the news for, uh, frankly, kind of sad reasons over the last decade or two uh, in, yeah. in terms of Katrina, which we'll talk about, Michael. Um, but you did not grow up in New Orleans. I think you're a New York product, right? New York educated by way of New England and even uh, the West Coast. Yeah. So, you know, we, we actually spent some time in the same kind of neck of the woods. But, you know, my story is that my family actually goes back to Louisiana. My my maternal family goes back to um, a little city called Donisonville in the 1830s. They were uh, economic immigrants from, from Europe. Um, my mother grew up in New Orleans, um, but she married a Yankee. And so I was born in New York City and grew up in White Plains. And, you know, you and I probably did a lot of the similar things kind of growing up and exploring the Upper East Side. Yeah. And and so how did you find your way back to New Orleans? After a stint in business, you graduated from Stanford Business School and then worked in uh, business out west, which I, I dare say is a more customary conventional thing to do out of Stanford uh, rather than spend uh, decades rebuilding New Orleans. Uh, so first, what was the West Coast stint like after after business school? Well, you know, so, I mean, it, it was typical, but it wasn't because at the time I thought I was a contrarian. Uh, but I was actually probably a fool because, you know, I graduated in 98. Uh, most of my classmates were becoming like the seventh employee at Yahoo. 
literally. And I decided, well, I'm going to go in the other direction. I'm going to go into retail. And I ended up uh, building and running restaurants in, in San Francisco during the first dot-com boom. And, um, <laughs> you know, as a result, a lot of my classmates are retired now. And I'm here uh, in a hotel room in, in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, you know, so I, I ended up being an entrepreneur, building and running restaurants. Uh, one of them, Foreign Cinema, still going today, 25 years later. And I got to tell you that the the experiences that I got from that, um, learning to manage cash, learning to manage uh, people, um, learning what it's like to make payroll, um, those are all things that, frankly, still inform you know me, me today. And, and I actually think that every young person should have to do a few things. They should have to work in a restaurant so they understand cash and people. They should have to do military or do volunteers or venture for America to do service. And they should have to go on a Mormon mission so they have, they can you know travel somewhere and have to sell something that nobody wants in a language that they don't speak to learn, <laughs> to learn salesmanship. But I, I loved that. But what happened was we got out after the um, dot-com crash in 2001 and my wife, who is Danish, wanted to see the country. And I was thinking about this as I was driving over today, Andrew, that I think probably that experience was seminal to me being come, becoming involved with, with Forward because we traded in our hipster GTI for a pop-top in a Westphalia camper and went around America 15,000 miles over, over nine weeks and got to see just the extraordinary beauty of this place in, in the parks and in the people and all this flyover country, you just got, you know, you develop an affinity for this part of, of America. Um, but it so happened we went through New Orleans, the ancestral homeland, and Marlena, my wife, turned to me and she said, man, you know, we should move to New Orleans. It's the only place in America you actually know where you are. <laughs> and I said, well, honey, that's because it ain't America. It's the northernmost city in the Caribbean. But um, regardless, that kind of planted the seed. We ended up in Barbados for a little while. I was going to work for the UNDP. We ran out of money. Ended up in New York City working for Bloomberg, for Mayor Bloomberg, um, probably the most talented leader I've ever really worked for, uh, doing post-9-11 work for him. And then when Katrina hit, folks from Louisiana came to see us in New York, wanted to see how we were accessing HUD funds, CDBG funds, and... Uh, that's when I let drop that my ancestral homeland was uh, Donisonville, Louisiana, and um, I made my way back. So what was the post-Katrina experience like? Uh, you know, having a major city six feet underwater, you know, it was tragic for all Americans to, to witness, but for people who lived it, it'd be completely different. Yeah, you know, it was, um, at first it was a, a surreal um, experience. We had actually been in New Orleans the weekend before Katrina, and... Um, as usual, it was beautiful and, you know, nobody knew anything terrible was going to happen. I happened to, during Katrina, to have been out at an Australian friend's 40th birthday party at Burning Man, <laughs> of all places. So I learned about it in the Reno airport. And so in case I wasn't depressed enough already, I'm looking up on the screens and seeing this surreal, unthinkable disaster unfolding um, and it was a very strange and uh, disassociated feeling. But then, you know, I came back to New Orleans quickly. And, um, you know, it, it was just as people described, all the cliches. It was a war zone. It was, um, you know, houses caked with mud um, eight feet high. I went to my college roommate who had moved to New Orleans to his home. He had been a quarterback. 
to check it out. And I found the, the classic black and white picture of him when he was young and thin and had good knees in his quarterback, you know, for Yale. And I found it stuck to the ceiling of his living room. And I called him and I said, you know, Tony, what do you want me to do with this thing? Do you, you know, would you like it back? And he said, Mike, just, just throw it out. We're, we're moving on. But at the same time, you know, you began to see these green shoots of, 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 of resilience, um, you know, homes with lights on, uh, restaurants reopening. I actually last night went to the first restaurant that I went to post Katrina. But I think the most interesting phenomenon, and my wife comments on this a lot, is that people started a culture of flags. They would put flags outside their homes of fleur-de-lis or of American flags or peace signs. And I think they were using these flags um, as symbols of, of resilience and resistance and just saying, hey, you know, we're home and, you know, we're, we're, we're staking a flag. We're coming back. Yeah, by the time I started spending time in New Orleans, it was a number of years later. Uh, I started going down for Venture for America in 2011. I went there every year for the next six years. Um, so I have very fond experiences, brought my family down there, brought them to the zoo, got stranded yeah. there because there was no Uber service out. <laughs> so my wife was like, what is going on? <laughs> I was like, oh, don't worry, honey. It's all under control. You're in, I'm very, You're very in New Orleans now. I'm a very capable father and husband. Um, <laughs> and you arrived full time, uh, you know, uh, before then and have now become a real pillar of the community. So most people, uh, when they hear the, the phrase economic development, um, they might not know what that means or have some vague sense. You have essentially been Mr. Economic Development for a decade plus in New Orleans. And anyone who knows anything about uh Frankly, New Orleans institutions knows you and your name. Like you yourself are something of an institution in, 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 New, Orleans, in New Orleans now. Um, so how does one develop an economy? You know, if, if you ask my kids, they'll say that you, you know, make speeches and send a lot of emails and go to cocktail parties. Um, and that's frankly kind of what I thought it used to be. I used to think that economic development was essentially a sales process. Companies would come in, you would show them sites, you would take them to Ruth's Chris, and then you'd try to bribe them with incentives. But what I came to understand from looking at communities that were really beginning to thrive, um, like Austin, like Nashville, like Charlotte, um, more recently like Tampa, um, Asheville even, Chattanooga, I began to realize that that actually wasn't what true economic development was. It's really not about sales. Um, economic development is fundamentally about creating the conditions where companies want to invest their capital and people want to raise their families. And now post-COVID, where remote workers want to live. And if you create those conditions that are favorable to investment and favorable to families, then the economic development is going to happen organically and all your challenges are going to be growth challenges. But if you don't have those conditions because political conditions are unstable or because quality of life is not what it needs to be, then, you know, you can you know, spend all the money you want on, 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 you know, white burgundies and on incentives and on, you know, meetings with the governor and companies are just not going to show up. And certainly remote workers are not going to show up. So economic development now, uh, the way we define it at GNO Inc. is to create a thriving economy and an excellent quality of life for everyone, 
So there's the wealth creation part, but then there's a quality of life part. And the third part about for everyone, it just simply is almost a mathematical or economic truism that if you're not optimizing the potential of all of your citizens, you're not optimizing your economy. So you have to be inclusive. So I've got a much kind of broader, don't color in the lines view of economic development than I did 15 years ago. I am so pumped that the last election is coming out September 12th. The political thriller by yours truly and Stephen Marsh, the author of The Next Civil War, will be in stores everywhere. But you can buy your copy right now at andrewyang.com. Order now and be the first on the block to know how the next election turns out. It has all the twists and turns. Will it be the last election? Let's hope not. AndrewYang.com for the last election. Buy it today. Thank you. Love you all. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So when I became a, a dot-com entrepreneur in the late 90s, we started with a dot-com, which completely just flamed out immediately. And then I worked for another uh, startup that um, raised venture money. And I, I saw – I didn't understand at the time because I was only in my 20s. Um, right. But uh, we, we raised maybe, I don't know, um, $7 million, $8 million. A ton of um, money but, back then. Yeah, but it, but it was from people that really wanted to grow, grow, grow. So we were on this like grow, grow, grow. And the CEO, to his credit, probably was like, "Look, um, we're either going to hit a home run or we uh, just stop swinging. Like there is no single double." Um, right. and, and that's because the investors had that uh, approach and risk profile. Right. And it's just a certain type of company. Like at the time, I didn't understand it, and I uh, frankly bristled at some of the decisions we were making because I'm like, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, but it, it probably does make sense in the context of well, you got to grow, grow, grow. Um, I've now seen that venture model break and kill like a number of company companies, um, and that company did not reach its goals. And then I became the CEO of what I'd consider a normal business where it's like you serve customers, you make a certain amount of money, you hire people, you hire relatively normal humans. You have uh, cash flow. 
you have cash flow. It, it, the entire thing is cash flow. Like if you don't right. make more in a particular month than you um, spend, then you, you're sunk. Um, and, and so you do this thing called managing payroll. You have benefits. Uh, you do morale building. Um, and so I, I, I ran that company for – uh, a number of years, and it was like the best time of my life. My wife still jokes, actually. She's like, when, when people ask what my the, my favorite time of my career, I say, oh, like you know, running uh, Manhattan Prep because uh, I'd just be actually good and rational and a good manager, and like that was the job, as opposed to you know, <laughs> like some of these other crazy positions <laughs> I found myself in, where you're running for president. Yeah, where, where you're doing things that are a little bit less uh, clear. Um, but but because of that, I internalized this set of uh, business, uh, what I call business physics, I suppose. And mm -hmm. then you, like you realize that, that, and then you realize that business physics has stopped applying in a lot of segments <laughs> of the economy, mm -hmm. especially now with freaking uh, AI and everything else. Like you know, I mean, like all, all of our business physics assumes that certain things have costs, and then now it's like, hey, it's essentially free to you know, like spit out a million. Research reports. But at the end of the day, though, you know, those laws of physics ultimately come to bear in some way. Um, and so, for example, you know, in the post-COVID era, when first Trump and then Biden were giving out $2,000 checks like, like candy in order to stimulate and then overstimulate the economy, um, I was looking at this and I was hearing people say that, oh, you know, it was going to be fine and this was, you know, kind of Keynesian stimulative type of approach and that, that there was going to be a little bit of inflation, but it was going to be transitory. I was just running the math on that, the math on those physics. And I said, if we don't have massive inflation, then, you know, Cartesian mathematics is broken. So when we had 7 8% inflation, of course, it was a challenge, but to some degree it was a relief because what it meant is that the fundamentals – still actually apply. And we're in such a vertiginous moment right now, which is has to do with where we are in a historical cycle and AI. And I know you had a guest a few weeks ago who talked about who was who the professor talking about the mathematical analysis of history and how it says Peter that Turchin. we're going I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And I think that in these moments, um, knowing that two plus two still equals four gives us a sense of grounding that we're not getting from you know, from the media, for example. So, um, yeah, there is something very grounding about running a business and making payroll and um, being a little bit old-fashioned sometimes. Yeah, I, I do want to press on that a little bit, um, just in the sense that uh, to the extent we got inflation because of all of the money printing, most of the money printing was not money to families. I mean, like the child tax credit and the rest of it was maybe 15% of the the $5 trillion, like, you know, 80 Three yeah. percent of it was uh, corporates and um, and uh, city and state governments. Some of which I agreed with. You know, I mean, you can't have some of these uh, like um, cities and states that can't print money uh, start hemorrhaging public employees. I mean, that would have been very very bad right. <laughs> during yeah, COVID. Right, right. So, so, but we just we made a bunch of choices. You know, but it's true that producing the five trillion did spur inflation. Or, that, and, you know, and, and to be fair, you know, thinking thinking about what we did or didn't do after two thousand and eight. You know, we learned our lessons about being too austere, and if we overcorrected, we probably overcorrected the right way, right? If you're going to have one of the two, a 2008 scenario versus having, you know, inflation for a little while, you know, it was probably the right mistake to make or the right overcorrection to make. Yeah, I, I was in yeah. fire hose mode during COVID. I was like, look, man, just put the fire out. <laughs> 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 it's, 
Um, though, though I, I have a problem with the way they directed the hoses, but you know, like, uh, <laughs> but, but I had no problem with the fire hose approach. But, but, you know, but you know what I think the question is like, I think it's like, if you think about going back to, you know, the, 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 the depression and the way we responded to that with things like, you know, the Tennessee Valley authority and all the programs to get Americans back to work and, and, and to build things that were of lasting value. Uh, lasting social projects. I think one of the concerns I have today is that we don't have a workforce that is prepared. We don't have enough qualified people to do the work. And the government bureaucracy, the government apparatus is not really set up to, to efficiently process all of these funds. And so, you know, if you would say that we were going to have the $5 million, you know, dollars from, from ARPA and IAJA and all the other fundings, $5 trillion, and that was going to lead to these projects that were going to have lasting social and economic value. That's great. But if it's only was going to, um, if we don't have the ability to process it or implement it in ways that um, echo positively into the future, you know, it, maybe it was still necessary, but there's less value. We're not going to be enjoying those lakes that were produced, that were made back in the, you know, the late 30s as a result of um, you know, the WPA. Dude, I, I think that's so profound, and it's one of the great frustrations in American life that you can speak to from experience authoritatively, because your organization actually channels millions of dollars to various things, and people actually yeah. want it to like bear fruit and bear results. Um, and one of the frustrations so many Americans have right now is, uh, hey, send money, and then the problem doesn't get any better, and then they're like, oh, you know the problem is? Not enough money. Send more money. And then you're like, oh, you know, I'm not quite sure that's actually going to do it. And I'm going to use an example that, you know, that just that I happen to know the numbers on. Um, so let's say that you're New York City schools uh, and you're spending $33,000 per student per year um, on on your school system and the results aren't good. And then people look at it and be like, wait a minute, there are 30 kids in a classroom. It's a million bucks. Like how much is the teacher getting paid? Like, you know, they're not getting paid, uh, you know, half a million or a quarter million. <laughs> so, so then you start looking around being like, what's going on? And then when someone says, it's like, you know, the problem, like system needs more money. And then you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I'm, 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 I'm not yeah. sure that's right. In, in my experience, and, and I, I think you'll agree with this, but tell me that the, the issue is, is rarely money and it's rarely ideas because money is there if, if, you, if you have the political will to get it. And ideas are, are plentiful. Ideas, frankly, are cheap. It's, it's, it's executional capacity, right, and, and, doing, and aligning incentives. And when we don't have the capacity to execute on the dollars or incentives are perverted, which is kind of gets, again, back to the basis of, of what we're trying to do with forward – then yep. you're not going to get you're not going to get good or efficient results, and so um, we spend a lot of time kind of focusing on the money. I think because it's an easier, sexy ask, but thinking about um, incentives and implementation and maintenance is not nearly as sexy, and it's much more kind of technical and pedantic. But you know, w without that type of approach, um, we're not going to get good results in our public education. We're not going to get good results in our infrastructure, you know, or in our political systems. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Yeah, so I'd love to hear some of your stories from uh, Greater New Orleans in this because you actually have to figure out, it's like, okay, what can we actually deliver on? Like, we put this money in place, like, what happens? And so one example that someone suggested to me about, um, let, let's say, the transition to green energy, it's like you put tax incentives in place to convert. It's like, but you actually don't have the trained mechanics who are going to go out and um, uh, and retrofit something or, you know, ch change uh, something to make it. Um, like capable of charging electric vehicle or, or whatnot. And so like the, the, one of the, the big problems, and this does hearken to the change between um, let's say the recession era and now where in the recession era, the government was like, well, I guess we're going to freaking like take thousands and thousands of Americans and we're going to dig some, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to make a dam. <laughs> we're going to do, do a bunch of stuff. Um, and, and now one of the, the things that Americans are getting very frustrated by is like, like the, you don't feel like we have the operating capacity. And then if you do say like, like if America wanted to build a bullet train in California, as an example, um, they'll just cut a massive check. And then you look back and be like, what's going on on that train? And it's like, the, <laughs> you know, that's our lived experience, right? How much have we spent on that bullet train so far? I think it's five billion, and right, and it's uh, it, it's no nowhere close to carrying a humid anywhere. Yeah, I mean, the, so you know, we we've had um, a lot of experience with that type of of, of inefficiency, and and actually, um, a lot of it of my experience with that goes back to working in New York City, you know, uh, under Mayor Bloomberg, where we ran some workforce programs post nine eleven that were where we have funded, and what we noticed about them is that. They weren't getting good results for companies or good results for workers because the incentives weren't right. Because basically these training facilities were basically getting getting checks for processing people through their programs. And there was no accountability for the jobs they were getting, uh, whether they were the, the right skills they were getting and whether they were sustained in those in those jobs. And so it was kind of a it was it was kind of a, a fraud, the whole thing. And so what we've done at GNO Inc. is set up a program called GNOU. And GNOU kind of flips the script because we said, you know, although the workers who are trying to help, they're really not the customer. And although if you look at universities, academics want to dictate what they want to teach or not teach because it's what they did their PhD on, they really shouldn't be um, 
you know, writing the rules. We really have to treat the business as the customer because there's this idea, and I know this from being a business owner as well as being a, a fake politician as an economic developer, that there's this concept amongst political leadership that businesses are kind of like Pez dispensers for jobs. And if you just hit them enough on the head, they're going to spit out jobs and you're going to be able to take credit for them as, as, as a politician. The reality is that you really have to treat the business as the customer and, and go to the, the CEO and go to the HR department and say, you know, what, what does your demand signal look like for workers? What skills do you need? What, what kind of actually humans would you employ? <laughs> exactly. And then you have to reverse engineer from that back to the schools, back to the nonprofits, and then you have to pipeline workers into that. And if you reverse integrate that way, you can actually create a sustainable pipeline and it ends up being kind of a triple win because people are getting real jobs. Workers are getting the people, I mean, companies are getting the workers they need to scale and the training institutions now have market relevant curricula. And so, you know, my, my favorite example of one we have on this is in a, a field called mechatronics. Um, I'm really not sure what mechatronics is, but whenever I say it, I think of Fergalicious. And ironically, if you Google the Fergalicious video, they're actually doing mechatronics in the video. It's all very kind of, um, you know, I know it's the multiverse anyway. But for this one, um, mechatronics is basically next, next level uh, assembly line work with computers and robots. And we are working with three companies that do advanced manufacturing work. Then we're working with three local two-year schools for training, and workers go and they are paid to go to school. Then they go wow. back and work on the line, what? and it's basically a <laughs> German-style apprenticeship program. And then when they graduate, they're hired, and they're making between sixty and $70,000. And so this type of program is what we're trying to replicate amongst uh, a number of industries, including using international partners. So... For example, in WIND, uh, one of our schools is working with a Norwegian organization called Energy Innovation that has embedded itself in the school in St. Bernard Parish, most devastated county in America by Katrina, and is training students how to work on windmill blades, which we're producing in Louisiana. So it's, a, it's kind of an obvious thing, but treating the business as a customer has helped us to create a, you know, a, just a, frankly, a, a more robust and serious and productive um, workforce program. So I tried to track down the measured efficacy of government-funded retraining programs uh, mm. for my book, The War on Normal People. And the best findings I could find were between 0 and 15%. And the reports were that as soon as you said, hey, we need to retrain these workers, someone would set up a diploma mill, uh, right. you know, get paid to churn the workers through, and then shut down. <laughs> Literally, this existed to get that government money and then like stamp everyone's hand being like retrained, 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 and then they would disappear. And then you'd have a legion of retrained workers with valueless skills. Like there was one story that, so this is a stupid thing, but like my editor actually That's took this line true. out of the book um, because in the study, uh, there's a guy who says something like my, my retraining certificate didn't keep my wife from leaving me. Um, it was, it was so rough. Uh, but and so I put it in the book and then my editor just took it out as being like a little bit too close to the bone. Um, uh, anyway, so truth, but no, that, that, that's what I saw. And look, I can take you to that, to that diploma mill that I used to work with at Hoyt Skimmerhorn back in Brooklyn. And man, when you figure that out, 
that what you thought is do-gooderism is really just the machine. Um, it's, it's depressing. And I'll tell you, I had a moment like that, Andrew, and it's probably what kind of got me here today. So uh, for a brief period after we got out of the restaurant business, I figured it was probably easier and probably kind of morally more uplifting to give away food rather than charge for it. So I went and worked for the food bank for New York City for about two years. Great experience. But the day I quit was we were at this gala and, you know, it was over at like on the west side and there was Mario Batali before he got in trouble and, you know, Maggie Jigginhall and all these, you know, actors and actresses. And I was looking at our brochure and on the back of our brochure was this chart that had this column chart that was getting higher and higher. Obviously, we were very proud of this. And I looked at it. And what do you think we were measuring that was going higher and higher every year from the food bank? Um, the budget of the food bank. It Basically, like, yeah. it was the food we were giving away, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I'm looking at this, I'm saying, guys, wait a minute, newsflash, if we're an anti-hunger organization, I think we're, I think we're failing more every year. We're, you know, but then I realized, oh, maybe we're not an anti-hunger organization. Maybe we're just an income subsidization program compensating for the lack of economic mobility for our working class in New York City. And I was like, man, I don't want to be part of this. I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be band-aiding this. And I was out of there within a couple of months. Yeah, it's one of the, the tough um, things I, I realized running a nonprofit that I'd started and ran for six plus years uh, that took me to New Orleans and a bunch of other places yeah. um, was that a, a, a lot of the nonprofits, as awesome as they are, it's like damage control. Uh, and uh, and in many ways, it's trying to fill gaps in bad uh, government programs, bad policy. Um, so, I, I mean, I love nonprofits. Um, one of the reasons, though, that I ended up running for president was the biggest nonprofits don't operate at the right scale to solve the problems that, that I think you and I are animated by, which are society-wide. So if you have a $25 trillion economy, um, and, and let's say in my vision of the world, it's like turning on more and more people because of AI and technology and a bunch of other things. Yeah. The, the, the biggest nonprofits you can find, um, I, I think the, the, uh, literally the biggest nonprofit, um, might operate in like the hundreds of millions or billion. Like you can't get to, uh, you know, a, any bigger number. And that's probably the United way or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to denigrate the food bank. The work that they do literally keeps, you know, kids from starving on a daily basis it's just that that's charity, and we shouldn't confuse that with strategic philanthropy. But it is, um, it, you know, it feels like um, we really need to direct our attention. And, and this is, you know, th there's, there's a line that, again, I, I kind of got this one from my wife. I want to give her credit for it, and that is that leadership is a collective responsibility. And so I think, you know, we, we rely on our elected leaders to drive social systemic change. But I think that we have to recognize that individually – we actually have the, the opportunity to do that. It might be on one very specific issue, but if we take that issue and if we do the drudgery of hitting it every day and trying to change the policies and raise awareness, then you know actually um, we do have the ability to, to do one thing that's going to echo because it, it's, it's, it's systems change as opposed to just helping a person. It's the old you know feed a man, teach a man to fish kind of deal. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little 
or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Oh, yeah, you and I are attracted to trying to solve the root structural problems and create value. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, you, you build things uh, like uh, I consider myself the same. And so you naturally are like, okay, like let, let, let's see what kind of problems we can solve. And there, you know, there's no shortage of them. Um, I mean, you, you've done so in a way that's influenced, uh, you know, at this point, probably like tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of lives um, uh, in New Orleans and beyond, like uh, in, in the region. Uh, you know, I, I have been trying to do the same since I started Venture for America in 2011. So I guess I've been at it for 12 years. And it, it led me into the political realm because I started to realize that Number one, the biggest problems we have are unsolvable without a functioning government. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, like right. that, there, there's like a whole series of problems we can solve with with commercial uh, applications and and uh, companies that are going to make money. But then there's this whole suite of things that you kind of need the government to have its shit together. <laughs> you kind you kind of need government to fix immigration. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's a fine yeah. example. I'm, you know, right. let, let, let's let's make a, a short list just for fun. I'm going to say you need government on immigration, AI, climate change, infrastructure, public safety, education, homelessness, uh, infrastructure. Uh, you know, I'm I'm up to seven or so. And, and let uh, me actually give you an, another one, which I think is 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 a little bit more ephemeral, but I think is incredibly important, and that is. Uh, national identity and trust in institutions, because without that, we get kind of back to a Hobbesian jungle pretty quickly, right? And so you can't. No touch wonder it. you listen to that Peter Turchin interview, Michael, because he's like, "Oh shit, we're like approaching Hobbesian jungle territory, coming <laughs> around the curve." Yeah, so I think that's why the work of Forward and, and everybody who's involved in this space um, is so is so important because everything points to us going through a period that's going to be politically and technologically disruptive. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a fact, right? And so the question is, if we're going to come out the other side with a country that we are proud of and where our kids and grandkids can stay, then I think there's an imperative on those of us that are lucky enough to have the ability to do something to, to do it. Otherwise, it's a decade from now. And, you know, uh, and, and we might not, I might be in Denmark, you might be in Belize. And I think there's going to be a lot of sense of regret because America is a young country. Um, it's, it's still an experiment and it's, it needs to still have people who are interested in propelling it and evolving it forward in a, in a, in a better way. Um, I want to dig into something you said half jokingly at the top where you you, you referenced um, working in a restaurant, which I totally agree with. And my first mm -hmm. job was working as a busboy in a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Uh, and be, people were taken aback by my perfect English <laughs> because most of the employees of that restaurant, yeah, you know, we're getting busted in from Chinatown. Where are you from? 
<laughs> well, you know, I mean, I went to school with their kids because it was my hometown. Yeah. Uh, and um, so a couple of busboy stories randomly. So number one, I was a busboy because my written Chinese wasn't good enough to translate orders to the kitchen, uh, which they needed in written Chinese. So it's like, right. well, I can't take orders. So I guess you're busing. Uh, n- number two, everyone else would get a bus from New York City's Chinatown to the restaurant and then leave at the end of the night. Um, and then I would get in my my you know parents Honda Accord and just drive home, drive home individually. I'd be like, yeah, bye everybody. Um, the three is that we would eat uh, leftovers from the the night, um, like as a late night dinner. Um, sometimes that food was not great because it was frankly the food that didn't make the table. Uh, and right. so I so my my go to was white rice with hot with doused in hot and sour soup with uh, fried noodles on top. And I just I mean, that. You, hey, you, you, you were young and you were living your best life. Yeah, there were good times. So you definitely do learn about service and people and money and just the basics. Can, can, I, can I tell you the most important lesson that I learned about that from that, which, which really saves my hide on a daily basis here? It's a true story. So our first chef was, was a guy from Marseille. And he was a very talented chef, but he smoked, he chain smoked Marlboro Red, so he'd killed his taste buds. And, um, but he was, you know, and he was kind of a Marseille kind of, you know, you know, sage poet de la rue. Anyway, there's this one night and a woman gets the bouillabaisse and she calls me over and she says, um, I don't like my bouillabaisse, right? And so, you know, I said, I don't all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I just, I comper the whole meal. It costs us whatever it costs us. And, you know, and they walk out and, and, and you know, and they proceed to go and, and just tear us apart on Yelp or whatever people were on, you know, back then, Zagat's or whatever. And so, you know, then the same kind of thing happened a few, a few weeks later. And just for some reason, instead of just comping the meal, I went and I, and I sat down with her and I said, um, you know, I'm really sorry about your bouillabaisse. And I said it with a straight face um, in dot-com San Francisco. I said, but, you know, tell me what's wrong with it. Tell me what you don't like about it so I can get some feedback back to the kitchen and we'll try to do better next time. And she proceeded to talk about how there wasn't enough broth and, you know, the, and the shellfish were inadequate and the toast was soggy. And I gave her a glass of wine and she proceeded, she after that became one of our best customers. And what I took from that is that, People want to have their problem acknowledged and to be heard far more than they want that problem to actually be solved. So the worst thing that you can do is to ignore somebody when they're expressing uh, distress about something. Um, But if you go and say, tell me about your problem, you've then succeeded because you've heard them. And if if you solve the problem, that's Lanyap. Then you're truly a hero. But so now in this job, when we get hit by stuff every day, my... Uh, action almost every time is to go right to the source of the problem and say, you know, I'm sorry, tell me what's going on. And it's just that that is a restaurant lesson that that I learned um, by comping a lot of meals. That that would work very well in your current role. It's true. That would that would uh, um, start every conversation off on the right foot. So the, the next suggestion you had was something around national service. Uh, and um, I put out on Twitter recently, I said, hey, what do you guys think about, um, and I use the word mandatory, which is a strong word, um, but mm-hmm. I, I said essentially required national service. I got a mixture of opinions back. No, I'm generally pro some form of national service or volunteering. Uh, I, I think it would be very helpful for national identity. I think that people should feel like uh, you know there's uh, an, an actual um, commitment um, and sacrifice and uh, um, and privilege, uh, you know, to, to being um, a citizen and American and, uh, you know, like I'm the child of immigrants uh, and 
feel very grateful to have been born here. But one of the things that does give me pause on it is uh, is that, and, and this goes back to what we'd said before, is that um, there are a lot of young people now, please don't beat me up, young people, but there are a lot of young people now who might not be exactly like high value ad contributors in a lot of <laughs> different environments. And so you, you get them in. And one of the my, my reference points for this is that um, the military right now is having a really hard time finding recruits that don't have uh, drug problems or uh, you know, like mental health problems uh, or the rest of it. And there's something of a mental health epidemic um, among young people. And, and so you, you imagine trying to take in, um, you know, 19 year olds and saying, all right, guys, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, and then you, you might find yourself in, in all kinds of, because there's like this notion, this presumption that like, oh, this person can tutor young kids. This, this person can clean up. This person can like hang out with old people. Um, uh, or do something that's going to be value add, even if it's not um, military in nature or Venture of America, which is entrepreneurial in, na in nature, which as much as I love entrepreneurship, I'm certainly not someone who's going to suggest, hey, like everyone should go right. out and, you know, start a business or, or try and solve a problem. Um, uh, and, and so uh, it, it did get me thinking. It's like, oh, man, especially in an age of kind of struggly capacity, which we have, it's mm -hmm. like, could this just turn into like a, you know, like, like a, a, a bit of a, um, like a, a mess where you're like bring people in and then they, they, you know, like may or may not be doing the thing that you need them to do, yeah, et cetera, I mean, et cetera. It, I don't think it's, I don't think it's easy to do. And I think you're, you're making a really important point. People kind of presume that getting into the military is easy and kind of an option of last resort. It absolutely is not. Um, you know, if you want an option of last resort, there are a couple of bars in New Orleans I can introduce you to. So I think it is something that is difficult. And as you know, from your own experience, you know, managing volunteers is really hard to do. A Very good hard. Job of Doing it well. Hard. Like, it, like if you're going to do it terribly, then, you know, maybe you can do that. But if you're going to try and do it well. And create value. But I still believe that if you if you if you define national service broadly, and so it, it might be the military, it might be. Um, it, it might be working in a in a soup kitchen. It might be um, you know uh, working in uh, you know in a, in, a, in a facility for the elderly. Um, it, it might not necessarily be Teach for America, which, for reasons you just said, can get kind of fraught and and was kind of a mixed or, success. Or, or even Teach for America. So Teach for America, like Venture for America, I think they were taking maybe one out of five applicants or something. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So you know, like it, like there's there's a high bar. You know, I, I think people look at that and be like, sure, it makes sense. I mean, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. Uh, Venture for America was similar. But I guess, you know, what I struggle with here, what we're trying to answer is, so um, when, when I'm in Denmark uh, visiting my wife's family, you know, you, you look at Denmark and there, there are a lot of things that are admirable about Denmark. It's, 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 it's a frustratingly competent uh, and cohesive country, but it's also a country where if you walk through the graveyard, there'll be about seven last names. You know, it, it's Anson, Olsen, Anderson, Jensen. And so there is a level of homogeneity that makes that, you know, cohesion pretty, you know, pretty easy. And, it, and it's a small country. Um, but there is this, uh, and there is a mandatory military service, by the way. And you do get the sense that one of the reasons why the country works so well, and frankly, one of the reasons why it always ranks as the happiest or second happiest country on earth and I can tell you, I promise you, it's not because of the weather, is because there's this sense of shared identity, responsibility, um, there's trust in institutions. And so I think that if we don't try to push back on the fragmentation, 
um, that's being driven by by social media and by identity politics. You know, we're going to give all that away, and you combine that with the way Trump really pulled that at the fraying of the social fabric. And um, again, we kind of end up retreating. Maybe it's maybe it's not a Hobbesian jungle, but it's the default quadrant in prisoner's dilemma, right? Where we're just kind of protecting our own empire of dirt. Yep. Uh, oh no! I'm, again, I'm very aligned. Um, uh, and so one of the ideas I came up with that was a hybrid when I was running for president. Let me try it out on you because it's like okay, it's going to be tough to get all these you know um, young people to do X or Y or Z. But here, so I was like, so what is within bounds that I think you could have the infrastructure and it'd, it'd be executable? And so what I came up with was, drumroll please, the American Exchange Program, which was when you graduate yeah. from high school, you go to another part of the country and live with a family that, frankly, is sending their kids somewhere else. And so then you you're, you spend uh, four weeks in another environment where that high school community is taking in a bunch of kids from elsewhere. And then they do a few community service projects. They meet kids from other parts of the country. I love that so much for, for, for two reasons that just come to mind. One is that obviously it's that experience that changes everything. You know, it's, it's when we took our trip across America. It's when you visit another country. I mean, it's when you, when you deal with people individually, um, everything changes. And as we know, statistically, although the country is more polarized than ever by political identity, when you ask people about individual issues or values, actually there's really a clumping around the middle. So you know, it would definitely be be beneficial in doing that. The other one is, uh, so Raj Chetty had this pretty fascinating work that came out about a year ago where he looked at economic mobility. And the thing that he, the only thing that he could figure out that mattered was not education, not even in, in zip code per se, but social capital, who you knew. And I'm kind of stretching this a little bit, but I guess the point is that what that speaks oh, dude, to I'm, is, I'm into it. I mean, if you had right? like 10 Facebook friends from around the country that you actually had spent time with meaningfully, uh, changes you know, even, even a few weeks. The, the fact that you and I have spent face-to-face time together means that this is actually a meaningful conversation that we're having. If we hadn't, you know, we, I might as well be swiping left or right. You know, with you, I would swipe right. But I'm saying, oh, thank you, thank you, yeah. thank you, all of yeah. you right swipers out there. Yeah, <laughs> oh, oh, you're you're Tinder Fuego, but like, um, so I think that that's actually a profound idea. And um, there's there's a, there's a program here in New Orleans called Live Oak that takes kids from different schools, and some of them are public, some of them are parochial, some of them are fancy private. And just throws them in summer camp together where they get mosquito bites and like, you know, do dangerous sports. And I think that's probably one of the profound social projects that we have going. That That's awesome. My kids would hate that. <laughs> I <laughs> just, hated it too. Oh, I, mean, but, I mean, they would benefit tremendously from it. I mean, they need that uh, really bad. So you and I have now been working on Forward for uh, a little while now. You've seen it all. You've been inside of government. You've run major nonprofit organizations. You've seen kind of like the best of institutions um, at work and probably the opposite of the best <laughs> in, in, in various ways. Uh, yes. um, uh, and, and one thing I think you and I share, so they're, they're actually – 
so that like if you operate in a real business like restaurant or um, you know my education company, and then you go around the country and you have a sense as to how most Americans live, you have this uh, desire to kind of champion folks who are uh, underdogs or overlooked in some way. Uh, and unfortunately, now I feel like that includes most Americans in most yeah. places. Yeah. Um, certainly, New Orleans, I would describe as something of a, like an appealing underdog, yeah. uh, you know, um, have, having spent time there. Um, <laughs> that, and yeah, yeah. And, and so the, my, my, my question really is like, what, what are the possibilities that excite and animate you the most? Um, you, you've described one, which is, look, you can actually create real fucking jobs if you actually use the business as your customer and say, what do you need? What kind of humans do I need to provide your business such that you will actually hire them? Now, that that's a harder thing to do than just set up a government retraining shingle and be like, you know, and frankly, it's harder to do at such high volumes. I mean, I can give a gajillion workers a shitty certificate and call it a day. But if, if I go to if I go to the employers, that maybe they'll be like, hey, I need, um, you know, 50 people like this. And then you're like, do you need 500? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, much, it's, it's a much it's much more retail than wholesale. It's much more case management. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the frustrations I have, and I think most people um, share at this point, is that everything seems oriented now towards how something looks rather than how it functions is like if yeah. I can put out a press release and have a press conference being like, here's a big number. And then no yeah. one will ever follow up whether if, those people actually – If I put a placard in my up. front yard or send out a, a snarky tweet, you know, then I'm a slacktivist, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, it's like if you track down what happened to those like, you know, 5,000 retrained people and you have like some abysmal success rate, it's like, that, you know, like it doesn't matter. People have moved on. I mean one of the darkest things now is everyone is like all I have to do is just hang on and then the attention will move elsewhere and then people will stop paying attention to my – Oh, there, uh, there's, a, there's a profound <laughs> cynicism. That's right yeah, because and, – and that's – and it's kind of what's creating this epistemological crisis because folks know they can say anything and there really ends up being no follow-up or fact-checking because then the next, you know – thing has happened right the next viral airplane video or whatever so my so i'm actually going to double down on that and then ask the question so here's my doubling down where i ran for president and was like hey guys you know why um all those midwestern communities went for trump it's because we got rid of four million manufacturing jobs uh primarily due to automation and all those places went from blue or purple to red and you know you can just look at the data and then people and um people would look at me and be like oh interesting interesting and uh, and it, it hit me that no one would ever say like wow 4 million that's a lot like if we get to 8 million maybe we should do something different like like, like i could have said any number and it didn't matter um no. like the the substance of what i was saying um, just got filtered into like, you know, a symbol. I just became the math guy and it's like, Hey, math guy is saying some interesting stuff, but mm -hmm. the, like the underlying reality doesn't affect anything, um, in our, uh, policymaking. And if you have that as your setup, then we're doomed because, you know, <laughs> like as the reality shifts in various ways and, you know, this we is don't why your time. idea is so brilliant because if more of these people had spent time in Ohio, Right. Or, or or Wisconsin. Right. You know, they would have had much more empathy for what was going on. I mean, I digress, but I just want to say that's why this this exchange program, this 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 domestic exchange program is brilliant for that reason. Yeah, who knows, man, maybe Ford will will make it happen. Um, so my, my question is, um, so you've given us one awesome example. I think most people will understand uh, about 
um, like genuine job creation. But what are the other opportunities that you've uh, seen and be like, okay, guys, here's something that we can get excited about and build on? I guess the the setup for this this answer is that pretty much you know every every meeting or lunch I have it starts off with how's it going you know one because that's a good kind of small talk question but two because people actually think that I might have some sense of it because GNO Inc is kind of like we we're, we're like that thing in the bottom of the sink that catches all the food you know we get little scraps of everything so we have some sense and what I tell people is that my days these days in New Orleans are like walking into one of those like you know, self-serve yogurt shops where you get the swirl flavor, you know, in your cone. And one of the flavors I get every morning is this beautiful swirl of del- delicious, creamy, refreshing vanilla. And the other flavor that comes out in the swirl is dog shit. <laughs> and, 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 and I used to try to lick around it and it wasn't working. And so now I get up every day, get the swirl cone, take a big bite, wipe off my chin <laughs> and take a swig of the coffee and get to work. New Orleans today is a paradox. Um, I would argue um, happily with anybody that there's more economic opportunity today than even after Katrina with the billions of dollars. Uh, We're building a new $2 billion port. Uh, We're leading the country on clean energy, uh, including we're becoming the offshore wind manufacturing hub for the East Coast. Um, We are building the largest spaceship ever built that's going to put the first woman and person of color on the moon by 2025. We're building the world's largest windmill blade. We're top 10 in the country for women and African-Americans in tech jobs. We're building out what we think will become the MD Anderson of Alzheimer's, a a hub for destination healthcare for ages of uh, diseases of aging. The airport is at record numbers. Uh, Everything that COVID took away from us, uh, culture and connectedness and making bad life decisions, they're flocking to New Orleans to to, to re-experience those things. So on the surface, or just looking at that, New Orleans and frankly, South Louisiana is on the verge of, of a boom time unprecedented in our lifetimes. But then going to the other side, the other flavor in the cone, you get down to kind of the, the base layer of Maslow's hierarchy. The blocking and tackling things around life safety, around infrastructure, and frankly, around people's sense of, of, of self and self-efficacy. And we're, we're hurting there. Um, you know, 2019, before COVID, we were at a 50-year low of homicides. Last year, we were at uh, almost a record number, a total, total reversal of fortune. Totally Terrible. tragic. That's awful. Tragic. Our infrastructure is, is old and, and, and in disrepair. Uh, with the exception of the $15 billion new wall we have around us that helps with, with hurricanes, but streets and, and, uh, and flood water uh, drainage. Um, and, and then you get to this, um, you know, we talk a lot about the poverty in New Orleans, and, and it's a challenge. And frankly, the lack of a middle class and really the black middle class, which was eviscerated by Katrina, is a major challenge. But I think the bigger one is that to some degree there's a poverty of imagination. Uh, folks either have come to accept uh, some mediocrity or worse in terms of basic services, or frankly, they haven't spent time in places like a, like a Nashville right now where things are doing much better. And um, without the imagination of what we can become, it's very difficult to put pressure on political leaders to inspire civic engagement. So New Orleans is a very hot and cold, strange place to be doing business in, 
right now because both realities are two. You know, we're either going straight to heaven or we're going directly the other way. Well, I need to get back there as soon as I can. I certainly recommend hanging out in New Orleans and making either good or not so good life decisions. Uh, you know, whatever you're there to do. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's a wonderful place. Um, if you do go to the zoo, uh, you know, make sure that the car service will. <laughs> the, the zoo, the zoo has excellent daiquiris, which is another reason why to check on the car service. The nightlife is great. The music's great. The museums are great. The people are great. Uh, I, I've had a lot of awesome times there. I have uh, been to Jazz Fest, and I've also spoken at uh, Collision, which I think might not be in New Orleans anymore. Uh, Collision did so well here that Toronto paid them $2 million, and they went there. But uh, they, uh, but we're, we're restarting our version of Collision with some... Uh, some refugees from South by Southwest. So stay tuned on that. <laughs> Look at that. That New Orleans cannot be kept down. You take their oh. conference, they grow a new one. That's that the spirit. Uh, so Michael, people must have been bugging you to run for office at various points. Uh, you know, I mean, you jokingly called yourself a fake politician. Um, like, what what do you project forward? Uh, uh, and and the, and I will say. There are a lot of people I know who, um, at this point, have almost become too savvy to run for public office. I suspect you might uh, somehow be among that number. <laughs> but um, if there's someone out there who wants to follow your example, make a difference in their community, maybe they're considering um, running for office. They might not know economic development exists as a, an actual career. Um, like, what what guidance might you give to uh, a young person who wants to become the next Michael Hecht of their community? Well, number one, don't try this at home because, you know, the, my, 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 you know, I've kind of reverse engineered what, what I am doing right now actually makes sense of my previous, you know, 40 years before these, these 10, but, um, it was not laid out in a, probably a thoughtful enough, enough way. I feel very lucky to be here, but I think that the key message is that people have to understand are, are one, um, that if you pick an issue, and if you push the rock every day like Sisyphus, you will get it to the top. You, you will make a difference. I have seen very few people that put in the 10,000 hours that don't make an impact. Uh, it, but it's drudgery. You know, it's, it's not a tweet. Um, it's, it's not, um, you know, just doing something performative. It's, it's, it's kind of an obsessive commitment. That's, that's the, the, first, um, the first thing. I think the second thing is that I just want everybody to be – I know we, we're kind of a broken record on this, Andrew, but it's really one of the things I love about you and the way you think. You're, you're such a polymath, but in everything that you're doing, you're always thinking about the structural level of it and what levers can be pulled to drive systemic change. And so I would encourage any person who wants to make a difference to try to understand the meta story, what is actually creating the outcomes. So don't hate the player, change the game. And yes. I think they, that's a way of you know, of, of thinking about, about this. Um, and then I think just the third is just to practice empathy, to realize that, you know, most people frankly want just about the same thing. They're just coming at it from a different lived experience. And it might sound a little bit cliche, but if you can put yourself in their shoes, you're not only going to understand them better, you're going to be more effective in trying to drive the change that we talked about in, in the, the first couple of uh, elements. Wow, empathy indeed. Sounds like an exchange program is needed. Michael Hecht, thank you so much, my friend. Looking forward to trying to get good 
policies across the finish line, not just in New Orleans, but around the country alongside you. Yeah, Andrew, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on the podcast. It's great to work with you. Thank you for all of your leadership and inspiration. And yeah, come back to New Orleans soon. I, I describe New Orleans as the most human city in the country, maybe the world. Um, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but boy, it's, it's a beautiful way to live. Most human city is definitely a great description. Uh, I love it, and I'll be back in no time. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate you. 